Red. But what do you mean, R2? I was not frightened at all. No. No, I was under the bench because, well, I didn't want to get in the way. Wait, wait, wait. Here's the best part. He said not a word as he held out his sack. Then he reached for our toys and he started to pack. And I thought as I watched this shy little man, what a joy to be part of his wonderful plan. Then he jumped in a flash to the seat of his sleigh, calling out to his reindeer to take him away. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen. By the light of the stars on each child we will call. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. And I heard him exclaim as he sped out of sight. Merry Christmas to all. And to all, a good night. afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm in the studio with Stephanie Carpenter, and we've got a special program for you, for you all out there. Um, we're hoping you enjoy it. Um, it will be a conversation with Congressman Lewis, Andrew Iden, and Nate Powell when they were here in town November 27th. Um, uh, so just a little while ago um, for the Penny Stamps talk um, and many thanks to Christina Hamilton um, for helping to make this happen. Uh, so on that Monday, November 27th, uh, the mobile unit, the Liz and I headed over to Hill Auditorium to set up and have this conversation with with the gentlemen before their event took place that evening. Um, so we were backstage. So later on, you'll get to hear this conversation. Um, but before that, I'll start with the bios for each 
beginning with Nate Powell. Nate Powell is a New York Times bestselling graphic novelist born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1978. He began self-publishing at age 14 and graduated from School of Visual Arts in 2000. His work includes March, the graphic novel we'll be talking about today, as well as You Don't Say, Any Empire, Swallow Me Whole, The Silence of Our Friends, The Year of the Beasts, and Rick Riordan's The The Lost Hero. Powell is the first and only cartoonist ever to win the National Book Award. Powell's next book, Come Again, will be released in summer 2018 by Top Shelf, IDW. Top Shelf is also the publisher of March, the March trilogy that we'll be talking about today. Um, And now on to Andrew Iden. Andrew Iden is creator and co-author of the graphic memoir series March, which chronicles the life of congressman and civil rights icon John Lewis. Co-authored with Representative Lewis and illustrated by Nate Powell, March is the first comics work to ever win the National Book Award. An Atlanta native, Andrew was raised by a single mother and grew up reading comic books. After college, he took a job with Congressman Lewis. Today, Andrew serves as digital director and policy advisor to Congressman Lewis in Washington, D.C. Other work of his includes the 2016 X-Files Annual and also articles for the Atlanta Alt-Weekly, Creative Loafing, and the Southern Poverty Law Center's Teaching Tolerance magazine. And now for Congressman John Lewis. And this is from his website. Often called one of the most courageous persons the civil rights movement ever produced, John Lewis has dedicated his life to protecting human rights, securing civil liberties, and building what he calls the beloved community in America. His dedication to the highest ethical standards and moral principles has won him the admiration of many of his colleagues on both sides of the aisle in the United States Congress. He was born the son of sharecroppers on February 21, 1940, outside of Troy, Alabama. He grew up on his family's farm and attended segregated public schools in Pike County, Alabama. As a young boy, he was inspired by the activism surrounding the Montgomery bus boycott and the words of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., which he heard on radio broadcasts. In those pivotal moments, he made a decision to become a part of the civil rights movement. Ever since then, he has remained at the vanguard of progressive social movements and the human rights struggle in the U.S. As a student at Fisk University, John Lewis organized sit-in demonstrations at segregated lunch counters in Nashville, Tennessee. In 1961, he volunteered to participate in the Freedom Rides, which challenged segregation at interstate bus terminals across the South. Lewis risked his life on those rides many times by simply sitting in seats reserved for white patrons. He was also beaten severely by angry mobs and arrested by police for challenging the injustice of Jim Crow segregation in the South. During the height of the movement, from 1963 to 1966, Lewis was named chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, which he helped form. SNCC was largely responsible for organizing student activism in the movement, including sit-ins and other activities. 
While still a young man, John Lewis became a nationally recognized leader. By 1963, he was dubbed one of the big six leaders of the civil rights movement. At the age of 23, that's right, 23, he was an architect of and a keynote speaker at the historic March on Washington in August 1963. And now we'll hear his speech from that day. I have the pleasure to present to this great audience young John Lewis, National Chairman, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Brother John Lewis. for jobs and freedom, but we have nothing to be proud of, but hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here, for they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. While we stand here, there are sharecroppers in the Delta of Mississippi who are out in the field working for less than $3 a day, 12 hours a day. While we stand here, there are students in jail on trumped-up charges. Our brother James Farmer, along with many others, is also in jail. We come here today with a great sense of misgiving. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. Unless, unless Tile 3 is put in this bill, there's nothing to protect the young children and old women who must face police dogs and fire hoses in the South while they engage in peaceful demonstration. In its present form, this bill will not protect the citizen of Danville, Virginia, who must live in constant fear of a police state. It will not protect the hundreds and thousands of people who have been arrested upon Trump charges. What about the three young men, Snickfield's secretary in America's Georgia, who faced a death penalty for engaging in peaceful protest. As it stands now, the voting section of this bill will not help the thousands of black people who want to vote. It will not help the citizens of Mississippi, of Alabama, and Georgia who are qualified to vote but lack a sixth grade education. One man, one vote is the African crop. It is our tool. It must be ours. We must have legislation that will protect the Mississippi sharecropper, who is put off of his farm because he dared to register to vote. We need a bill that will provide for the homeless and starving people of this nation. We need a bill that will ensure the equality of a maid who earns $5 a week in a home of a family whose total income is $100,000 a year. We must have a good FEPC bill. My friends, let us not forget that we are involved in a serious social revolution. But by and large, American politics is dominated by politicians who build their career on immoral compromising and align themselves with open form of political, economic, and social exploitation. There are exceptions, of course. We salute those. But what political leader can stand up and say, my party is a party of principles? 
for the party of Kennedy is also the party of Eastland. The party of Javis is also the party of Goldwater. Where is our party? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march on Washington? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march in the streets of Birmingham? Where is the political party that will protect the citizens of Albany, Georgia? Do you know that in Albany, Georgia, nine of our leaders have been indicted, not by the Dixocrats, but by the Frederick government for peaceful protests. But what did the Frederick government do when Albany deputy sheriff beat Attorney C.B. King and left him half dead? What did the Frederick government do when local police official kicked and assaulted the pregnant wife of Slater King and she lost her baby? Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. In 1964, John Lewis coordinated SNCC efforts to organize voter registration drives and community action programs during the Mississippi Freedom Summer. The following year, Lewis helped spearhead one of the most seminal moments of the civil rights movement. Hosea Williams, another notable civil rights leader, and John Lewis led over 600 peaceful, orderly protesters across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, on March 7, 1965. They intended to march from Selma to Montgomery to demonstrate the need for voting rights in the state. The marchers were attacked by Alabama state troopers in a brutal confrontation that became known as Bloody Sunday. News broadcasts and photographs, many by D Danny Lyon, um, revealed the senseless cruelty of the segregated South and helped hasten the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Despite more than 40 arrests, physical attacks, and serious injuries, John Lewis remained a devoted advocate of the philosophy of nonviolence. John Lewis was elected to Congress in November 1986 and has served as a U.S. representative of Georgia's 5th Congressional District since then. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia. And now um, for our conversation about the March Trilogy with Congressman John Lewis Andrew Iden and Nate Powell from November 27th, 2017, backstage at Hill Auditorium. To start, what was it like when you saw in 2013 the first print edition of March Book One? What was it like to hold it in your hands and see what you guys had, had envisioned? Well, I think I remember handing it to the congressman for the first time, and, and he looked at it, and he just kissed the cover. <laughs> and he held it back, and I remember us saying that it was as if it always existed. We just had to bring it out of uh, wherever it was so that it could be here. Because it was meant to be. It felt right, yes. this story. Um, and the story, actually, it's 
started because of the Martin Luther King. Is well, is it fair to say that the germination of the idea came from the Martin Luther King um, book and the M- Montgomery uh, story? Was that sort of the the, the birth idea of why um, March should be this this comic, uh, this trilogy, this comic trilogy. Well, I think that's where it came from. Uh, if Andrew would just speak up and tell the story. Uh, he came t- to me and, and said, uh, Congressman, you should write a comic book. Because um, he'd been hearing your stories, right? From, right. from working with you. Right. Well, it was the summer of 2008 and uh, Barack Obama had swept to the Democratic primaries and I was serving as the Congressman's press secretary on his re-election campaign. And folks were starting to talk about what they were going to do after the campaign was over. And some folks said they were going to go to the beach. Some folks said they were going to see their parents. I said I was going to a comic book convention. And everybody laughed at me. And the congressman said, don't laugh. There was a comic book during the Civil Rights Movement. And it was very influential. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. So I went home that night and I looked it up on the Internet. And it was available. It was free. It was beautiful. It's this 50s house style. Um, and it, it captivated me. And here I had spent that summer... Um, I I grew up in the congressman's district. He's been my congressman since I was three years old. And yet, having gone to Atlanta public schools and having, um, you know, heard the story of the civil rights movement, nobody ever told me the stories that John Lewis was telling, the stories of SNCC, the stories of what the young people were capable of doing. And so when he told me about Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story and I read it, I couldn't help but think, you know, there should be a John Lewis comic book, right? Right. The comic book nerd in me being like, well, this should exist, totally. Um, a real life superhero and and a role model for young and, uh, yes. people. Yes, yeah. Um, and how did you, Nate? When did you get involved? What was? How did you get into this auspicious partnership? You bet. Well, in terms of the timeline, uh, Congressman Lewis and Andrew spent about two years working uh, the congressman's narrative into a script uh, as a single volume initially, and they. Uh, got a deal with Top Shelf, our publisher, with whom I've been working since about 2004, 2005. And I was finishing up work on some other books and actually read the press release just as a comic book nerd. And I was like, oh, what a cool project. Well, back to work. But I, I didn't I didn't like see between the lines that the absence of an artist listed meant that there was no artist. And, and that there so, could be this opportunity. Right. So our, our publisher gave me a call a few weeks later uh, just making sure I saw the the press release and sort of strongly encouraging me to try out for the role of artist. And beyond that, it was like any other collaborative process I've, I've worked on with other writers. So they directly sent me some sample pages of script from what became the first book. I did some demo pages and got criticisms and notes, uh, and sort of resubmitted those pages. And really within about two weeks, we felt like we clicked. And, uh, from some previous work I had done, I was kind of, in a in a good position to kind of hit the ground running and just start start acquiring all the reference and research and, and really got started quickly. And, um, Congressman Lewis, could, could I call you John? Yes, Is call me okay? John. Um, so, what was it like to see the stories um, that you lived, like like the lived stories, come alive in this way on the page, like through Nate's? Well, it's very very moving, very moving. Um, some of the images. Uh, made me laugh, but some made me Wait, cry. Made you laugh? I didn't expect uh, you to say that. Yeah, made made me cry. <laughs> oh, and cry. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it is so painful. Um, you, you read March Book One, and you read Book Two, and then you get to Book Three, 
Is that, is that your favorite book? I shouldn't well, ask you to pick favorites, I suppose. Well, I, I love all three. Uh, book three is so powerful. It is so powerful. But there's so much unbelievable drama. Um, when I first got involved in the movement, people would ask me from time to time, what must we do, John? What must we do? So we need to dramatize the issue. We need to make it real. And Nate Powell has the capacity through his drawing to make it come alive. He On made, the page. He made, yeah, make the images and the words dance off of the pages. Right. There's so much captured movement in the illustration. It's And, and that's what the movement was all about. It was, you know, picking them up, putting them down. Whether it was a march in downtown Nashville, a, a marching from Selma to Montgomery, a marching on Washington. It was movement. When you're sitting in, you may be still, but you're moving. All that that energy inside, like the, I guess it's there's no because um, there's there's courage and there's fear and there's um, what you what you want, like desire for what you want well, you to change. Witness. You bear witness to what should be. You bear witness to the truth. And you see these young people, some much younger than, you know, I was like 19 and 20. But there was was high school students sitting there being ready and willing to go to jail. And to be to be beaten and and to look the person who was like beating you in the eye as well. Right. To keep eye contact, to not be defeated. But people were on with with a dream that somehow in some way we could overcome. We could redeem the soul of America and make our country a better place. It, so this makes me think of um, your the idea, and I think your life's work as well, of building the beloved community. Is that is that well, right? Well, we were told John by a young man by the name of Jim Lawson. He he was our teacher. He's in book three. Yes. And he instilled with each one of us that he came in contact with to believe somehow that you could build a beloved community. You could come together and just love everybody. You, you may be beaten, you may be thrown in jail, but you're still going to love and let no one pull you down. How do you, um, and maybe, uh, how do you find the strength to keep renewing that faith um, in your own ability to do that, to keep loving, to keep trying to build this community? Um, especially, it seems like now in 2017, I feel like a lot of people listening in the Michigan community, but also beyond the Michigan community, where you're trying to sort of have energy to keep to keep fighting, to keep loving. Well, I think today, in spite of everything, there's a renewed sense that we need the spirit of the movement now more than ever before. Uh, I was speaking someplace a few months ago, and a person walked up and said, Congressman, I need a hug. I said, I need one too. So we all just got to hold on to each other, depend on each other, and we would get there. I believe that. And... My work on the project really helped underscore uh, 
by absorbing these lessons and especially by bringing them forth into my life as a parent uh, and then watching the world unfold, you know, a world that my kids will inherit, uh, the importance of underscoring that injustice is not something which is corrected once. Uh, It requires constant vigilance, constant work. It is not necessarily a rewarding task. It's a multi-generational task. It's ongoing. And so uh, we're, in some ways, we're seeking to kind of rectify my generation's uh, take, which we absorbed about the lessons of the movement, simply having to do with this was work which was done to correct an injustice at the time. That it's history. That it's history, that a victory was made, and that is a book which is closed. Now we've arrived at a point where uh, you know, hopefully we have all uh, been pushed to a point where we're able to see that, see the, the fallacies in that, that assumption. Uh, and so the challenge then is, to, is to, to rise to that and recognize that you play a role in, you know, a lifetime's struggle, one in which everyone has a responsibility to, to participate. And is that why you, you all structured the book three the way that you did? sort of the final moments. How can you talk a little bit about how how you decided like cuz how do you how do you finish this? <laughs> right? And I don't feel mm-hmm. like it is finished, but that's another question. It never is. <laughs> well, I mean the very last scene was something that we we came up with um when the book was almost finished. It was a it was a uh it was a conversation that actually took place that we the congressman and I really had and I I remember coming to Nate and the congressman at various points being like you know we have to we have to put a punctuation mark on the fact that we even did this graphic novel that it was so uh, outside of the norm and what was expected of us even though we were drawing on history um, it's almost impossible to convey how outlandish people thought it was when well, we first because it's a story that's there yeah. and you feel, you almost take it for granted that it's in our DNA now but I'll tell you it this book is necessary. This trilogy is necessary because you feel the story and you're moved by it in such a different way. So I can see what you're saying, Andrew. And, and one of the things that we were fortunate to have is the first wave of primary documents that had been digitized. Um, many of the activists kept these papers. And so when we were trying to do book three, we were just going from the congressman's recollections. We were going from the meeting minutes and the after action reports and the Watts lines reports. And you can actually um, go through the book. And someday I'd like to annotate it and do an annotated version so people can see where the who's, sources and are. And who's speaking exactly sometimes uh, right, with because, some of the people. Because I think there's this inclination to say, oh, it's, it's, um, you know, it's dramatized. And in fact, so many of the quotes and the dialogue pieces that we take is from a, either a meeting minute or an actual recording or something like that, so that it is, in fact, a nonfiction book. Um, and, and that in that process, what we learned was um, far more so than, than even the congressman had described to us was, was how much of a conflict uh, was, was going on under the surface uh, between the factions within SNCC, between the, the factions within the movement, um, that the revolution itself was messy. And I think that's lost in this generation because... But that's important to know. Exactly. Because it's, it's, it's messy now, right? right? 
and to go forward. Right, and they, and they say, you know, this isn't your, your grandparents' civil rights movement or something like that. And I say, no, no, no. This is exactly like your grandparents' civil rights movement. You need to understand that because, you know, when an activist gets pushed off stage or something like that by an older activist and, and people say, oh, it wasn't like this during the movement. It was exactly like that during the movement. And this is this is natural, it, what's happening. Um, and, and the response to it is what's so important, to be nonviolent, to be faithful to, to your cause, um, and to be persistent as the congressman and his colleagues were. As you are traveling around the country in this capacity with March, um, the trilogy, what are you finding that, because you found that there was a person who said, I need a hug, (laughs) right? When you're talking with um, young people and students, what do you feel like, uh, That what are they saying to you? What are they asking of you? Well, I, I truly believe that March, and when we go out talking about March, book one, book two, book three, we inspiring people, we giving people hope that there is a way. There is a way out. There's a better way. What, what also seems crucial from my perspective is that particularly when students have questions, they are hung, like they need the answers to these questions. And I need the, to clarify in my own head what the answers to these questions are because I share them and I share these fears and these anxieties. Um, I found that one of the most valuable pieces of perspective that we can help give, whether it's through our work or whether it's through your experience as congressmen themselves, um, is particularly when people ask about next steps about tactics and strategies and and ways in which this might echo or line up with some of the the approaches during the movement uh it's been most valuable i think whenever we're able to impart that key moments within activism of the movement worked because it was coming from an unpredictable place because new approaches were tried new perspectives and risks were taken and by design you know these tactics and strategies often can't work a second time or the world has changed. And and so like, it's only by thinking outside the box and it's only by viewing your tactical and strategic approach in relation to the world around you on the ground at that moment that you can really find the most creative solutions and approaches. So we try to underline that it was that component of creativity and surprise, which enabled some of the greatest successes within the movement but that you have to carry that forward and find the next unexpected uh, insights and strategies in order to, to make new changes and, and shift in new directions. And it sounds like you're also saying that you have to do it together. Oh, certainly. Like a part of, which I feel like some, many times it feels like we're very individualized and, and sometimes even how we feel like we respond to calls to action. But that seems to be changing, maybe even with like the Women's March mm-hmm. most recently, I think. Um, well, I think once, so, people, once people get a taste of it, uh, yeah, you're right. There is certainly an issue of ego that we all, that we all struggle with, particularly when it has to do with group participation. And yeah, we've many of us, I think, have been pushed into a state in which you recognize that, A, it's not such a big hurdle 
to overcome when you're able to put your ego aside and recognize that you're participating with large groups of strangers who believe in the same thing or who fear the same thing or who hope for the same thing. But then it gets a little easier every time and, and it becomes a more welcoming community and a more expansive community. And maybe not all believing everything exactly the same, but finding those bridges, those ways to still work together and to have hope, like you were saying, John. Well, I think the Women's March probably is one of the best examples of a mass effort on the part of hundreds and thousands and millions of people, not only in America, but all around the world, yeah. all around the world. And with social media, people were able to communicate to get the message out. And it was an, it was nonviolent action at its best. So if we, I have kind of a very specific question and, and forgive me if this is, uh, we'll, we won't stay too long on it, but Richard Spencer wants to come speak on the, at the campus of the University of Michigan. Um, it's hard to know what to do because they might allow him to do it. Um, and it's it feels like this is a this is a, a time where students, faculty, staff, the community, we must do something. But is it to go in the face of what this group does come here, or is it to go somewhere else and to be a part and to make some other type of movement or celebration, or I don't know what would what would March the trilogy do? <laughs> well, I think. March is saying that a university is a place where you debate ideas. And if you're going to live up to the meaning of the First Amendment, people have a right to dissent, a right to protest, free speech. And whatever you do, do it in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion. It's also important to recognize the successes of the actions at the University of Florida Yes, uh, recently, uh, and to use that as another uh, starting point for new strategies, new tactics, ever-evolving, ever-shifting, but that's a base from which to grow and think and move uh, as the scene begins to be set here in Ann Arbor. I think it's also... Right now, we're going through a moment where what you might call the opposition, the, the, these radicalized white supremacists, have studied the movement. And they are understanding the tactics that John Lewis and many of these young people pioneered. And they're studying the same texts that we are. And it's why we have to be so prepared and why we have to understand the fundamental principles and live them to the fullest extent. Because they're hoping and counting on a slip-up on being um, goaded or tempted much the same way that Bull Connor was or Jim Clark was. Um, and we can't fall into that. Uh, we have to be peaceful. We have to be orderly. We have to be nonviolent. And rise up together and be together in this right. to show that. So um, in the trilogy march, in book one, book two, book three, I feel like there's just this, this this overflowing of the opportunity and the possibility and to absorb this imagination and empathy within the book, like to be in these stories, sometimes with you, um, John, like they're seeing the expression that's 
in your eyes on the page. Um, was that when you guys were creating this? <laughs> is this something that all of you were thinking about the power of story, the power of imagination to then key in to, to readers of all ages, young people especially, perhaps, but everyone? Um, when we were preparing to release book one, um, we laid out in a nonviolent fashion the way you should. We laid out in writing in a newspaper in Atlanta called Creative Loafing exactly our intent. Um, we Nate did the cover of the congressman and I co-edited the, the issue and it was on the future of nonviolence. and we very explicitly stated in that um, that issue that our goal was to educate, inform and foment a new nonviolent revolution in America um, our intent was to use these graphic novels much like Dr. King and Jim Lawson used Martin Luther King to inspire early acts of civil disobedience and, and plant those seeds um, and so this has been our intent from the beginning. I think a lot of people at the time thought we were a little nuts that we could pull it off. But, you know, we're getting there. And I think it speaks to the power of this generation's um, ambition for a better, uh, more peaceful community. Because if each of you, I feel like, has a story. Like John with the library card, right? And then, Andrew, I think you with the teacher in the classroom saying comic books aren't real books. And Nate, I feel you've got a story in there, too. I've always got a story. Well, because you started self-publishing at 14, right out of your backpack, do it yourself. So it's like there's always been this this sort of, um, I don't know, like this, well, there's been resistance that you've overcome to, to make this story come alive. It's amazing to me to see the, uh, the reaction of young people. I was at a function in, in Washington a few days ago in Georgetown, reception. And the youngest person that was, was nine years old. And read the, the book. This little boy had read all three books. And he could tell me almost the essence in all three books. He, he knew where the chicken story is. Right. He just went on. Wrote, wrote a poem, he wrote a song. Nine years old, just, he'd been just lifted. So this, and, and this is what you said was what you, you wanted to inspire. Yes, Like this is yes, what this book yes. is about. We were someplace in, uh, in California. Maybe I was there at a little library. There was a little girl about eight years old. She had read the book and she said, Congressman, why are you so awesome? <laughs> I didn't know how to respond to that. I hope I Andrew said something wise yeah. then. Right. <laughs> but the kids get it. <laughs> and they will be the leaders of the 21st century. So it makes sense to start inspiring them the with these stories. And, yes. so, and these books are now as part of curriculum across the country, right? March mm -hmm. is in schools now. Yeah, it's, it's sort of become a phenomenon that I didn't... The, is even surpassed our expectations. You've got school systems like uh, Atlanta, New York City, San Francisco, Nashville, and smaller school systems around the country as well who, who've all brought it into their curriculum. Um, oddly enough, to, uh, or surprisingly to us, both in history, social studies, and even in English class as literature. And, um, you know, that's, that's what you hope for. That's, that's what you work for because there's something in this country called the nine-word problem. There's a term coined by the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, that, that essentially is that uh, most students graduate 
uh, from high school only knowing nine words about the civil rights movement. They know Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream, and that's it. And marching is probably the, the greatest leap we've had uh, to addressing that, that problem ever. And uh, I think you know, the, we're really lucky that the congressman has devoted so much time to going around and speaking to students and following that up so that school systems uh, feel as if they're being supported in that decision mm-hmm. um, and that young people are then able to connect with this real person. Yes. So that it doesn't seem as if it's a far-off idea, but this is simply – only one just right. in the pages it's we we see we see right. him and you're so awesome as the eight-year-old said to quote the eight-year-old <laughs> just trying to help out <laughs> <laughs> well i feel like that's what all of us but hopefully that's not what all of us have to do right and each of you do you guys have a project that you're going to do is there another trilogy or so in the works uh, or are you stay tuned? Stay tuned? Okay, okay. You continue to dream. <laughs> you never give up. You just dream. And then you're trying to make those dreams real. And it's now the time for um, to get in necessary trouble? The time is always right to get in necessary trouble, good trouble, now more than ever before. Thank you all for speaking with me today. I've so I've so loved it. I'll always remember this. Yeah. Thank, Thank you for having me. Thank, Thank you. Thanks. the last part of our program. We will hear personal stories and memories from people who marched with Congressman John Lewis March 7th, 1965 at Edmund Pettus Bridge. We will hear the voices of Henry Allen, Walter May Kenny, and Willie Nell Avery. You can find these stories online at obamawhitehouse.archives.gov.
first black firefighter in the city of Selma. And then in 1995, I became the first black fire chief in the city of Selma, in which I was already the first black Afro-American Alabama National Guard. In the spring of 1963, we were introduced to what we call student nonviolence. He said, well, they slapped you on the left side, you turn the right side. The key to the process when I finally submitted myself to nonviolent. And so we, we had no idea that we were writing a page of history. So I was, my job was to look out for my other sister and brother, although we were just a year apart. We were all, for the first march that we had to go to jail, we all had our names on the list. All three of us can't go to jail at the same time. Now, somebody got to get away and tell Mama what done took place. Because we haven't even told her that we're marching. And so when I went home and told her, I said, Mother, they called my brother Shake. Are the Shakers in jail? Baby sister's in jail, and she grabbed her heart. I wonder what in the world is going on. Dr. King didn't come to Selma until January the 2nd, 1965. We started in the spring of 1963. Even when Dr. King did his famous speech, I have a dream. We were marching. And so when Dr. King came to town, it escalated. So I went, I went to school that day when I shouldn't have. I should have went to Brown Chapel Church. And when I looked up, I saw three state troops with horsebacks on. They were high between the high and the horseback. There was no way in the world that I run three horses for a long distance. So one elder later to my left, she opened the door and propped her door open. And I was running so fast, I just dove through the door like on a diving board. And that's the only time I realized the fact that I came this close from being killed today. We weren't just a bunch of kids marching. We marched with dignity, respect, character. All this was a part of the movement. We were learning to, to actually work together as a unit. Cause we spent long in, in jail together, get, get pushed around together, and beat up together. And so we, we established a pretty, a pretty tight bond among them. And even though in the process of all of this, that we were known for a fact that we needed our education. to me, Kenny. I'm a native of Perry County, Marion, Alabama. I was born in Perry County, and I've been there all of my life other than going off to school. I'm the first black county administrator of Perry County. Now, I went to Lincoln High School, one of the best schools in the country. We didn't have much, but what we had, it was something that resonated in our mind that we had to make a better life for each other. I'm a sharecropper's daughter. We followed all the rules. I went off to school, and when I came back, there were no jobs. So we felt like there was a time for a change. You know, sometimes enough is enough. He was working with the children to get the children to, to march and protest. And when they put the, parent, the children in jail, of course the mothers came. And then when the mothers came, the fathers. And then we had demonstrations every night and every day. When we marched out of the church, there were several ministers marched up in, ahead of us and kneeled down to pray. And when they kneeled down to pray, they, the city put the, turned the lights on. And they began beating people with billy clubs and sticks and with guns and whatever else they had. And a lot of blood was shed that night. So when we went down that Sunday, 
to march. We marched, we got up to the bridge from Brown Chapel Church. And as we got up to on the top of that bridge and went over the bridge, some of us, Jim Clark gave the order to shoot tear gas. And all you could see nothing but just white. I mean, just like a cloud of smoke. So we came back and started running back toward the church. And as I ran, it was just something. You don't know why you ran, you don't know, you didn't get tired. And it was a little, a little child caught my hand and said, run. And went to the little loose till I ran about seven or eight blocks back to that church. I never saw him again. I don't know who he was. You know, there was something in the air. You know, it was just something that, that you just don't know why you did, but you knew it had to be done. As if it was something that was moving within you. And you had to do it because you saw the suffering. You know, our parents suffered. You know, we just hand to mouth. And uh, it was just, you know, you live in America. And why should you be treated any less than being a citizen? So then we marched and protested. I was born in Dallas County as a sharecropper, but I moved from Dallas County to Perry County in 1961. So I went and um, tried to become a registered voter. And they gave this test as the other two ladies talked about. And there were some things on that test, maybe saying how many drops of water in a pool and that kind of thing. I'm saying, who knows anything like that? So when I moved to Perry County, Perry County had something going on. They were trying to become registered voters. And the day that leading up to Jimmy Lee, we had marched uh, in January of 65 and got arrested. And when they got arrested and didn't go home that afternoon, and when the bus ran, and the school bus took those people to jail. And when it ran, the children didn't come home, so the parents came to the mass meeting that night. And Albert Turner told them, says, look, if you want to see your children and want to do anything about it, then you come to the mass meeting tomorrow. And they were there. So he told us, you can't fight. You know, it was a nonviolent thing. And I led that march that day. After the, the children had gone out, something like 26 or 27, I led that march. And we were put in prison in Thomaston, Alabama. And then we had enough guts to go back the next night. We marched again the next night. And so the story has not been, been uh, documented correctly because Bloody Sunday is because of Jimmy Lee. And we have had memorial service for the last 50 years. And this, and this coming on March the 8th, we will get in our cars and caravan again to Selma and go and march. But we go every, every year. It has been a joy, but it also has been sadness. And the reason I'm going to say the sadness, our young people probably had not been taught the way they need to be and they will sell votes now. We're still in charge, but I can see us you know, going backward because of this. So we have a lot of work still to do. 
and just been blessed and I'm still here. So uh, it has been a joy to be here today to tell our story. Many thanks to Congressman John Lewis, Andrew Iden, and Nate Powell. In this program, uh, we, we heard about their trilogy, March, the first comics work to win the National Book Award. Many thanks also to the Liz Wasson and the Mobile Unit, and to Christina Hamilton and Penny Stamps, and to Stephanie Carpenter for putting the show together with me this afternoon, and to the Burton Bell Tower, and to all of you for listening today. For more Living Writers, check out Living Writers' Instagram and our website. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time, let's march. Wait in the water Wait in the water Children Wait, Wait in the
the children of the Israelite. Hello. 
Hello and welcome into the Daily Sports Report. My name's Yosef Gross. I'm joined in studio today by Lucas Vargas and Finn Storr. We've got a good show coming up. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, football in general. But uh, I'd like to start out with uh, a preview of the upcoming games this weekend in the NFL. Uh, in general, what are some games you guys are looking towards seeing that you think will have an impact on the playoff picture going forward? I'm currently looking at... Um Green Bay Packers against the Carolina Panthers on Sunday at 1 o'clock in Carolina. Uh, Panthers are favored by three right now at the moment. This will be a big game um, playoff-wise. Uh, the Packers need to win out to have any chance of making the playoffs. Aaron Rodgers has returned. And I think there's a bit of a void at the top of the NFC. Um, the Eagles losing Carson Wentz to injury. Minnesota Vikings with Case Keenum at quarterback. Um, and then other teams like the Saints... Falcons, Panthers, all those NFC South teams looking a little inconsistent. Yeah, I'm really looking ahead at the Saturday night game this week, actually. The Chargers and the Chiefs. The Chargers are coming in as a very hot team after starting up the season off very poorly. The Chiefs flipped the script where they were on fire at the beginning of the year, and they've tailed off quite a bit. And uh, this game is, they're both 7-6. and six. This game could go a long way to determining which team is the AFC West champion and gets a spot in the playoffs in the AFC. Yeah, I agree. That's definitely a big game as well. Yeah, and that's something we've talked about in depth. I know me and Finn have had some disagreement over <laughs> who's going to win, the Chargers or the Chiefs, and we actually have a, a side bet going, not that we bet on sports, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to determine that. But what do you think is going to determine that game? Who do you see, And who do you, I want to get some predictions as 